Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, Tracy, have you ever heard someone thinking they were a comedian get on a PA like at a store and say, Judge Crater, call your office. It rings a bell. Yeah, I, I have vague recollections of it, but it seems like uh, weird things when I was very young or faux memory. Mm-hmm. But uh, people who have heard that or didn't know that was a thing, it was a thing people would do. Uh, comedians would also use that line. And it's actually a joke that's housed in a historical reference. Yeah, I think I thought it was from television. No. Like that it had something to do with Mrs. Wiggins or something. No. Uh, so the vanishing of Judge Joseph Force Crater is one of our most requested topics. Uh, lots of people want to hear about it. And it's considered one of the largest missing person cases in the U.S., uh, in history, and it was uh, one of the biggest news stories of the 1930s, probably second only to the Lindbergh baby, which happened a couple years later. And it's actually fueled decades of speculations about what exactly happened to this New York State Supreme Court justice, because there are a million question marks. And as we'll talk about a little bit more later, and as we've talked about in many other episodes, uh, a lot of contradicting accounts of what actually happened. Right. So we'll do a very brief kind of biographical where he started. But really, we're going to focus on his career in this vanishing. Yeah. So he was born in Pennsylvania on the 5th of January, 1889. His parents were Frank Ellsworth Crater and Layla Virginia Montague, and he was named for his grandfather. And he worked his way through Lafayette College and Columbia Law School. He took clerk jobs uh, and, you know, kind of tried to work in law offices as he was working on his education. And from day one, he seemed to always cultivate professional and political connections. Uh, and he eventually opened his own law office at 120 Broadway. And that was in what was, I believe at the time, uh, one of the largest office buildings in the country. And it was a little bit prestigious. In 1916, he represented Stella Wheeler in a divorce. And later, the they got married in 1917, and that was a week after Wheeler's divorce was finalized. Yeah, she kind of found love at the law office. She married her divorce lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, early on in his career, Crater joined the Cayuga Democratic Club, which was the seat of uh, another group you may have heard of, which is the Tammany Society. Sometimes it's also called Tammany Hall, uh, which was a New York political organization that had actually originated in the late 1700s. And as time went on, it came to be associated with corrupt voting practices, bribery, and other political corruption. Uh, the phrase vote early and vote often was heavily associated with the Tammany Society, particularly in the late 1800s, although I don't believe that is where it originated. Uh, but the group continued to be linked to corruption well into the 1900s. So Crater was kind of joining in with this group of people that had some kind of CD connections. Uh, there's even a Dr. Seuss political cartoon from 1941 featuring the phrase vote early and vote often and a cat wearing a Tammany sweater. So widely recognized as uh, a little bit dicey political arena there. Yeah. So in 1920, state Supreme Court Justice Robert F. Wagner Sr. appointed Crater as his secretary. And at this point, Crater was also teaching law at Fordham and NYU as an adjunct professor. Yeah, so he was getting in with, you know, kind of the heavy hitters in the justice system at this point. 
And he, you know, had various political appointments that came his way and opportunities that came his way. And they were, you know, believed to be uh, favor based or possibly bribe based in many accounts. But the one interesting kind of counter to that is that even though people don't necessarily contradict that being the case, that they, they weren't always gotten through the most noble means, uh, he was viewed as really quite a good lawyer and, in fact, an excellent professor by many people. Uh, and even though he was doing all of these uh, kind of favor appointments and, you know, possibly corruptly gained positions, he was still making most of his income from actually practicing law. But his business was booming because he had all of these political connections. So there's kind of almost a... Um, there's a lot of interplay. Yeah, there's a lot. It's like a layers of an onion, but all the layers interconnect sort of Tesseract style. Like they're all kind of feeding each other from different angles. On April 8th, 1930, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who at that point was the governor, appointed Crater to a vacancy on the state Supreme Court. So there's already rumors going on that he actually bought his way into the position by paying off the Tammany bosses. There are stories that indicate that he had withdrawn $20,000 from his bank just before the appointment. It's not completely confirmed. But if so, that would support the rumor that there was a big payoff going on. Yeah, and that was a a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money for somebody now, but... It was even more a lot of money. In 1930, to just go pull out $20,000. Yes. is a lot. So we're going to jump right to his disappearance. Because it happened very shortly after... He was appointed to the state Supreme Court. So on August 3rd of 1930, uh, Judge Crater was on vacation in Maine with his wife, Stella, uh, in there. They had a vacation house there. And he abruptly left to return to New York City. And he had done this previously a couple of weeks or a week before and then came back. And so, again, he was kind of leaving abruptly. And he had promised her that he would return within the week so that they could finish out their vacation together. On the morning of August 6, 1930, Joe Crater went through his office in the state Supreme Court chambers, and he destroyed all kinds of documents and then also packed up other stuff into folders and briefcases. And he moved a lot of documents into his Fifth Avenue apartment. And he also directed his clerk to withdraw $5,000 from his bank. Uh, and he arranged for a ticket to that evening's Broadway performance of Dancing Partners, which was a show that had opened just the day before. That evening... Crater left Billy Haas's chop house on West 45th Street after having dinner with a showgirl named Sally Lou Ritz and his friend and fellow lawyer, William Klein. He headed off, allegedly going to the theater. And the theater ticket that he had booked earlier in the day was used, though witnesses said it was most definitely not Judge Crater who actually used it. And then he was never seen again. It was just four months after his appointment to the state Supreme Court, and he had just vanished. Yeah, completely into thin air. And then before we get to the investigation and kind of what has grown out of this vanishing, do you want to take a moment and talk about a new sponsor? Yes. So it will sound completely odd initially, and it is odd, but there's some sort of explanations for it. But Crater wasn't actually reported missing for almost a month. His wife, who he had left in Maine, thought he was in the city, and she didn't really grow concerned until uh, the 16th, which point at which point it had been about 10 days since she had seen him and she hadn't been able to contact him. 
And some of his friends and associates in the city initially thought he was still in Maine with his wife. So they weren't thinking there was anything amiss. But then uh, it became apparent that he was MIA when he didn't show up for court when court was back in session. Uh, and initially, his friends that had already realized that he wasn't immediately available, they kind of started to investigate themselves. And they chose not to tell his wife because they didn't want to alarm her. Yeah. This seems bizarre to like a really modern ear because now cell phones are ubiquitous. Yeah. But landline phones were not ubiquitous at this point. Like, yeah. So you would go days and days without hearing from someone. Yeah. There were many, many households that didn't even have phones in them. So it's com- not completely unheard of that a person would be used to not hearing from their partner for that long. The very thought is terrifying to me. Uh, yeah, like, me too. I don't. I don't get a text from my husband by a certain point in the day and I start freaking out like something bad has happened. Uh, and it uh, wasn't until August 25th that a formal investigation began. Uh, so at that point, it had been about 20 days. And even then, it didn't really hit the newspapers and become public knowledge until September 3rd. And at that point, the news was broken that Judge Crater was officially missing. So... The official investigation started, and once that was made public, all kinds of less-than-noble things, a lot of which had been rumored for a really long time, came to light. He was involved in brokering deals to buy and sell judgeships, and he definitely had a taste for dalliances with showgirls, although a lot of people characterize his marriage to Stella as being very devoted. So, Yeah, and I, I never know... How much of that is um, people kind of trying to paint a nice picture of this guy that they knew and they were friends with? Or how much of it really is that he seemed to have, you know, both a very steadfast devotion to his wife and a tendency to have affairs on the side? Right. Which I suppose is possible. Yeah, I would say that's possible. Uh, especially for someone in a position of power. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he would certainly have available to him a lot of options Who's in terms a- of... A temptation-rich environment, so to speak. (laughs) Uh, There was also a news story that ran briefly in September of 1930, so just a little while after Judge Crater vanished, that Sally Lou Ritz, who, remember, was the showgirl that he had dinner with the night he vanished, had also disappeared. Uh, And this caused people to immediately speculate that she had been killed by someone to keep her quiet. But apparently uh, that report was published in haste. Because while reporters couldn't locate her for a day or two, it soon turned out that she was, in fact, in her parents' home in Ohio, perfectly safe, and she was interviewed there. So initially, there was an even seedier thing that people thought was coming to light, and then it turned out to be nothing. But on a similar story, June Bryce, who was rumored to be his favorite showgirl, did vanish in late 1930, but she resurfaced later in an insane asylum, and that's where she lived for the rest of her life. In early 1931, so still just a few months after Judge Crater had vanished, his wife Stella allegedly found a two-inch thick envelope in a bureau in the couple's Fifth Avenue apartment. And this envelope contained insurance policies and $6,000 in cash, as well as a letter that was written by Joe Crater, which listed out people who owed him money uh, and it in- was very insistent that this information was confidential. And presumably... Uh, according to many people's assessment of the situation, he had left this information for Stella so that she could collect on these debts to support herself and maintain her lifestyle. And this raised all kinds of other questions. Like, 
how did the police miss this envelope during their searches of the apartment uh, when they were investigating? Right. Like during a missing person investigation, you do a pretty thorough combing of their personal effects. One would think that they looked in the bureau. But apparently not. So it could have been overlooked. But there, the other thing that rang very oddly to Crater's friends uh, about this discovery of this envelope was that they insisted that the judge always carried his insurance policies and his other important documents on his person. Uh, so if he had been snatched, theoretically, which sounds completely bizarre to me, but <laughs> I'm laughing um, at that. That's why you're saying that. Um, I'm laughing at this idea. Yeah, just I can't imagine carrying important documents with me everywhere. I'm like, that's not safe at all. I'm just going to oh. have my birth certificate on my person at right. all times. So their, uh, you know, assertion is that if he had truly been, you know, kidnapped or plucked from his normal goings on, he would have had those documents with him and not tucked carefully in an envelope left for his wife. And so this fact, as well as the discovery of several other small personal effects in the Fifth Avenue apartment that Crater was known to carry on his person at all times, uh, and they were just sitting in the apartment. So this fed the theory that Judge Crater had, in fact, chosen to vanish rather than having been the victim of a crime. So his wife had this ongoing struggle to collect on the insurance policies. And as a result of that, in 1939, Joseph Crater was legally declared dead. In 1979, the missing persons case was officially closed. Yeah, it's, uh, without him being declared dead, life insurance policies would not pay out. Right. Because he could just show up again and it could all have been a scam. So. I feel like that's a soap opera plot. <laughs> I, well, it kind of was. There was a whole other trial that went on yeah. with Stella uh, that really dragged on and it sounds just miserable. Uh, so an interesting point in terms of how Stella handled things after the disappearance and long after she had settled these life insurance issues is that for more than three decades, so every anniversary of her husband's disappearance, Stella Crater would walk into a bar in Greenwich Village uh, and she would order two drinks and she would toast, good luck, Joe, wherever you are. And she would drink one of the drinks and she would leave the other drink untouched and then leave. Which in a way sounds very sort of wistful and sad and romantic. Yeah, it makes me feel a little teary. But then the part of me that wonders if she long suspected or even knew that he had arranged his own banishing. If it's not kind of a like, wherever you are, jerk, I'm drinking in your honor. Uh, But that might just be my cynical side (laughs) coming out. So we have lots of theories about what happened and reported sightings. Yeah. (laughs) Which is what happens with missing persons. Yeah. Uh, so there are so-called craterists, and these are unsolved mystery enthusiasts who study all these pieces of this puzzle to try to come up with the most logical explanation for what happened. And they've come up with a lot of explanations throughout the years, and even people who don't identify as part of that group. Yeah. Uh, some of the theories have included that he uh, was a victim of a hit because of a mob connection and some sort of deal gone wrong. There's- Ran off with a showgirl. Yeah, since it it was at this point, you know, once he disappeared, it became very public knowledge that, in fact, he had had a lot of affairs with showgirls. Right. So perhaps he R-U-N-N-O-F-T. Right. <laughs> uh, the other one, this one I kind of find hilarious, and uh, I don't know why. Because it's very silly is why. It's far-fetched. There are some that assert that he somehow became amnesic. Like, he had amnesia and couldn't remember who he was or what he was doing. Because soap opera. Because soap opera, which so much of the actual story is very soapish. You can see where people might land there. 
There's also the theory that he committed suicide. Yeah. Uh, there's also a theory that he was maybe killed by a blackmailer for not paying them off. Uh, there's also a theory that he landed at Polly Adler's brothel. So, allegedly, according to these early drafts of a memoir that uh, Adler wrote much later, she wrote that Crater died in her bordello. And they, she had had his body removed by friends. Um, we don't really have these alleged drafts, though. Right. Uh, we're kind of taking someone's word for it that they, oh, I've seen these drafts. But I cannot show you them. But now they're gone and destroyed. Uh, so we don't know. Uh, that's another, that's another kind of soap opera-ish one that people like to talk about that he died in the arms of a prostitute and then there was a big cover up. Uh, and for decades, the New York Police Department received letters and phone calls from people all over the U.S. and the world claiming to have seen Judge Crater, and particularly as important anniversaries of the disappearance would you know, uh, be coming up or just pass. So, like, at the 20-year mark, they got a ton of these calls. At the 30-year mark, they got a ton of these calls. And he's been reported as being seen everywhere from walking down Park Avenue, on jets to other countries, prospecting in California, herding sheep in the Pacific Northwest. I guess someone... Thought maybe he had a, a yen for a simpler life, uh, in a mental hospital in Missouri, playing dice in Atlanta, running small time casino games in North Africa, uh, just hanging out in Havana in the South Pacific, in Shanghai, basically anywhere and everywhere on the planet doing any possible thing you could be doing. He has been reported as having been witnessed doing and being that thing in that place. Yeah, he's like a judicial Elvis. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking when I was reading all of these weird accounts that people have reported through the years. Yeah. So there have even been some staged hoaxes. There was one in the 1970s where police were called to a bar on New York's east side, and they found a man dressed as Crater as he had appeared when he vanished in 1930. And they had lots of video cameras. Yeah, and the, the person that was playing Crater in this staged hoax also looked like Crater would have looked in the 1930s. So it was clearly not the same person. When we get into the time traveler theory. Yeah. <laughs> he was a doctor. Um, uh, so before we get to another development that happened in the 2000s. A much more recent thing. Yeah. We will pause for just a moment for a word from our sponsor. Yes. So now we get to a very interesting letter. Right. In April 2005, Stella Ferrucci Good of Belrose, New York, died at the age of 91. And this would have been a completely unremarkable circumstance, but she left behind a letter that reignited the Judge Crater case. And in an envelope that uh, she had left behind that said, Do not open until my death, uh, Ferrucci Good left a note that claimed that her late husband had learned the actual truth about what had happened to Crater. And who had murdered him. According to this note, a New York Police Department policeman named Charles Burns and Burns' taxi driver brother, Frank, conspired with other people to kill the judge and bury his remains under the boardwalk in Coney Island near West 8th Street. And one interesting point of note, uh, and this comes up a lot, particularly as we're looking through some of this uh, information that was revealed in the note is that various media reports of the contents of this note, even though this is a fairly modern event, uh, as well as other aspects of the crater disappearance that have been reported through the years have been consistently inconsistent. 
in some stories about the Ferrucci good note, uh, it's reported that her husband was actually involved in the murder. And in other reportings of this note, they say that her husband was simply told about it by Charles Burns while they were having drinks in a bar. So Frank Burns allegedly picked Crater up in his cab from the chop house that we referenced earlier on West 45th Street, then stopped a few blocks later, and two more men got into the cab. The car then headed to Coney Island, where they were joined by two more men, and that's when the judge, according to this letter, was killed and buried. And this is where we need to point out another inconsistency in the various accounts of the last time that Judge Crater was seen. If you look through any of the various uh you know, books about it, and there have been many uh, newspaper accounts, etc. Some report that witnesses saw him getting into a cab, which at least sort of connects to the idea that Frank Burns could have picked him up in a cab. But others insist that there is no such witness testimony that he walked away from the chop house and did not get into a cab. So that's another kind of pebble to turn over in your mind on this about how inconsistent everything is. Yeah. Although we've talked about lots of different motives that people could have for wanting to kill a judge who was involved in nefarious activities, there was no motive mentioned in the note. Uh, there was, for fact checkers, a Charles Burns that was on the police force from 1926 to 1946, uh, and he was assigned to the 60th Precinct, which is in Coney Island. So there is some substantiation of some of the information in this note, but then other things are a lot murkier. Right. There are some reports that indicate that in the 50s, when the New York Aquarium was being built, remains were found under the boardwalk. Other sources say that there is no such evidence and that this is just a rumor. And since there hasn't been any kind of big announcement that Crater's remains were found, either way, the case remains unsolved. Uh, If there had been a body unearthed in the 50s, you would think that the first person that most people would think of would have been that it was the famous missing judge. Yeah, that's another one that news outlets will say, like, there were uh, there was a body found in the 50s. We've called the police for confirmation. And others will say there are rumors that there was a body found there in the 50s, but we've called the police and they firmly deny this. So it's kind of interesting and a little bit confusing. In the words of Simon Rifkind, who was a lawyer who worked with Joe Crater and I think to some degree viewed him as a mentor, and Rifkind actually signed the form that formally opened the investigation into the disappearance, uh, he described him as saying, quote, Judge Crater was a man of such commanding appearance, he couldn't possibly get lost in a crowd. And Rifkind is not alone in that sort of description. This was a man who was very dapper. He was always well-dressed. Many people would have called him handsome. Uh you know, a tall commanding presence, not someone who could just vanish. One of the problems that's ongoing in this whole mystery is that there's all kinds of obfuscation and spin that's been put on the case through the years as many, many, many authors and different people who have a little part in the mystery have published their own accounts of the disappearance. So as with any event, eyewitness accounts also contradict each other. And there's Uh, Also, the possibility that people are purposefully bending the truth. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, no, no, my account is the correct account. I am writing the new version of what really happened, and it's supported by these things. But there's always something different. So what really happened to Judge Crater in 1930, I would say at this point it's a safe bet we will never actually know. For all we know, he lived out his life somewhere very happily elsewhere. 
or he's been at the bottom of a body of water for a long time or any number of other things. We right. just don't know. So, yes, that's the Judge Crater disappearance. It kind of leaves more questions than answers, unfortunately. But yeah. Sometimes when so many people really want us to talk about something, we get pretty invested in wanting to deliver on that, even though we don't wind up at a satisfactory yeah. mystery-solving conclusion. Yeah, there isn't any. I think a lot of people that were very into the case were probably so excited in 2005 when that letter appeared uh, and possibly solved it, but it really didn't, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, do you have some yeah. listener mail? I do. Go along with this episode. It doesn't really go along with this episode. That's But fine. it's a fun listener mail. And it is from our listener, John. He says, hello, ladies. I write to you from Australia, where I have just listened to your podcast on Zenobia. What first attracted my interest is that my grandmother, who lives in the city of Perth on the West Coast, lives near a Zenobia Street. This was the only other time I had heard the name before. So naturally, I thought there might be a connection. You can imagine my growing excitement as I learned that not only was it the same Zenobia, but this was confirmed by the fact that all surrounding streets were other historical figures from her era, Aurelian, Solomon, and Cleopatra. The icing on the cake was to learn that the ancient colony she ruled over is also the name of the suburb where these streets are found, Palmyra. After many decades of walking these streets in this suburb, I had no idea of any of their significance or historical connection until now. I've already passed on Zenobia's story to most of my family members. Not only was this stuff we missed in history class, but stuff we certainly missed on our GPS as well. I love that. Me too. That's so fun. Uh, if you would like to write us about discovering that streets near you have historical names uh, or anything else, or this <laughs> if episode, you know, if you know where Judge Crater is, give right? us a yell. You can do that at historypodcast at discovery.com. Uh, you can also connect with us in many other ways. Uh, you can connect with us at facebook.com slash history. We're still on Twitter at Missed in History. We're available at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. And we have a whole new Pinterest at pinterest.com slash history with many, many boards that have many, many different uh, categories of historical things to look at. Yeah. Previously, we had one board on the House Stuff Works page. Now we have many boards. A herd of boards. So many boards. Uh, if you would like to learn something sort of related to our podcast today, you can go to our website and type in the words missing person. And one of the articles you will get is how to volunteer for missing persons. So you too could become part of a group that helps investigate and search for clues. If you would like to learn more about that or almost anything else you can think of, you can do that at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Lynda.com. You can learn it at Lynda.com, an online learning company with more than 77,000 video tutorials that teach software, creative, and business skills. Membership starts at $25 a month and provides unlimited 24-7 access to top-quality video courses taught by expert instructors with real-world experience. Listeners of Stuff You Missed in History Class can try Lynda.com free for seven days by visiting Lynda.com slash history stuff.